Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Lyon here. And we've got a lot of things to take care of on today's show. Uh, we're going to be talking about public access television, uh, a form of community media that's on television. Uh, and we love to talk more about that. We love to learn more about that. And that's going to be really exciting. It's like a community radio station, but it functions differently. It functions differently than community radio. and uh, But there's a lot of things I think that uh, community radio folks can learn from public access TV and vice versa. They have a lot in common. They have a lot in common. And there's some very interesting things happening at Open Signal. Uh, Portland Community Media here in Portland, Oregon, where we're based. And I think it's a great conversation for anyone who wants to create community media to listen to. It's something that Eric uh, put together. And so we'll be listening to that in just a moment or two. Yeah, but first we're going to talk about network neutrality. Of course we're going to talk about network neutrality. How could we not talk about network neutrality? Yes, on December 14th, in a party line vote, three to two, three Republicans to two Democrats, the FCC voted to end the open internet rules that were put in place just two years ago, with a, which effectively ends network neutrality in the United States. We're going to talk with our uh, friend, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, who's going to explain, okay, what comes next? What what can we see happen with the internet? What will we see in the FCC? Who's going to sue who? And what it means for community media? Yeah. So let's, without further ado, delay, let's let's get right into that interview with Christopher Terry. Thanks for joining me, Chris. I wish we were talking for a happier reason, but I'm glad you're joining us anyway. Always glad to be here, Paul. So here's a question I think people have, and. Chairman Ajit Pai, chairman of the FCC, sort of actually has brought it to the surface in his own strange way just now as we uh, record this on uh, Friday, the 15th of December. Some people have really been wondering, you know, with the FCC vote to undo net neutrality that, well, all of a sudden now, will I not be able to get to the stuff I want? Will the podcast I want not download? Will my Twitter quit working? And even Commissioner Pai's was quoted saying, well, see, your Twitter works today, so clearly all this net neutrality stuff is a ruse. Uh, explain this to us. What, what is really going to happen, and, and how sincere is uh, Chairman Pai's statement that because Twitter works the day after the FCC got rid of net neutrality, then, then net neutrality is a ruse? Well, I, when I saw that headline today, I actually thought it was an onion story because Commissioner Pai knows better. In reality, today, net neutrality is still on the books, and it's still on the books for about 30 more days. The rule that the FCC voted on uh, this week will still be on the books for 30 days until that rule is published in the Federal Register and then becomes law. So what they voted on yesterday isn't actually in effect today, and his comment is very patently dishonest along that line. So... If that's the case, so then we're talking about the publication of Federal Register about 30 days from now. Uh, is then, will, do people expect that all of a sudden their, their internet slows down? Or, or what, what, what is the likely sort of near-term effects that people might see? Or what should people be on the lookout for then? Well, I think the immediate thing that you'll need to look for is a change in terms that will be coming from your ISP. One thing that the new rules require them to do is disclose how they're managing their networks. And in that, they're going to have to tell you what their intent is. 
But like most people, they don't, most people don't read the sort of the fine print in those deals. But the fine print is going to matter. And paying attention to the details that your cable company is going to tell you about are going to be the, the next big thing to watch for. So are these terms going to be something like, uh, sorry, we're blocking Twitter or sorry, we're blocking YouTube? Or is it going to be something a little bit more uh, uh, arcane, if you will? Well, it'll be embedded in a very long and painful to read document in a very ambiguous way that allows them to say they disclosed whatever it was that they were doing without actually telling you specifics like Twitter is going to be blocked. It'll be put into the language of things like we're going to be able to engage in reasonable network management uh, at high usage. We have the rights to limit high usage users at various times. It'll be vague but will describe in terms uh, a quite different arrangement between you and your ISP. And do you think, I mean, will someone be paying attention to this? Will somebody be looking at these, at these changes of terms? I think lots of the groups that are out there that are getting ready to go to court will be watching this very, very closely as these things begin. But remember, uh, you know, the, the comments of Pi today sort of are illustrative of one point. Administrative law takes a while. Right. It's going to take about a month for any changes to be legal and it'll take the ISPs, you know, another batch of days, maybe 15 or 20 to implement the things that they're going to start implementing. And it'll be incremental. Right. It'll be accept this new set of terms. And then a couple of weeks later, there'll be a new set of terms. And eventually you'll just kind of have lost your sort of open Internet access. But that that also is part of the story at this point. Because the next thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a big batch of legal challenges to this once the rules are published in the Federal Register. So what are those challenges going to be based on? There are three areas in which a challenge could be brought that I see at this point. Number one is the state exemption. That's a serious issue that is ripe for judicial review. I think what the agency is doing there is arbitrary and capricious and will send at least part of Thursday's vote back to the commission on a remand. The second aspect is a big one, though. How the agency handled comments is an arbitrary and essentially unprecedented decision by an administrative agency. No agency has ever had this large of docket in terms of public comments. And the agency is essentially arguing that they can't rely on the nature of those comments uh, as part of their rulemaking decision. So instead of thinking about it or trying to come up with a mechanism for doing it, they're just ignoring most of the comments in the docket. I think that that in and itself is a fairly arbitrary decision. But I also think there's a third aspect to this that is important. The agency is making a decision based on evidence that doesn't appear to exist. The argument made by the majority this week is that it, broadband investments died down since Title II rules were implemented in 2015. That appears to be more theory than actual empirical fact. When the agency acts on a decision and makes a decision and supports the decision without empirical facts, that's an automatically an arbitrary and capricious decision. It's the kind of thing we've seen with media ownership over the years. And I do believe that part of this order goes back to the commission. Now, how that shakes out, we'll still have to, we'll have to hold on. But over the next year, there's going to be an interesting legal battle that breaks out over those three points. So let's untangle this. We have some state's attorneys general, uh, the top sort of 
attorneys for each state, uh, I think led by New York State, uh, who are going to file suit against the FCC. And I mean, we don't hear about this very much. How can how can states file a, a suit against the Federal Communications Commission? That's not something that happens every day. Well, in the New York case, uh, the New York Attorney General has been investigating uh, some identity theft related to the comments that were filed in the docket by the public, people who had their identities stolen and wrote a comment uh, in favor of pulling back net neutrality when they didn't actually write those comments. So that's part of it. But there's a larger administrative issue that the state attorney generals will certainly have some standing on. And that's the part of the order that doesn't get talked about a lot, that the Federal Communications Commission is asserting its authority to preempt state law. So what the Federal Communications Commission did is said that the federal government wants no part of net neutrality regulation. But several states that have been implementing municipal broadband plans and stuff have sort of voiced an interest in a state-level control on net neutrality. But one of the things that's in the order that doesn't get talked about is that the FCC is going to preempt those laws from the federal position. And that grants the state attorney generals a great deal of latitude to sue the FCC on that point. And what what kind of rules is the FCC preempting? What is it the states are are trying to affect that the FCC is going to try and stop? Well, the states want a handful of states want to put into place a set of rules that would regulate internet activity inside of the state and essentially apply net neutrality to communication in the state. And when the states and the federal government conflict on such things, the federal government tends to win those disputes. And the Federal Communications Commission is trying to use that leverage to assert that it has control to exempt broadband providers from those state-level laws. Got it. And so that's why the states want to pursue this. That makes, that makes a, a lot of sense there. And so let's take a step back and think about community media, which is something which, you know, is of great concern to us here at Radio Survivor. Think about podcasting, uh, internet radio, which includes, you know, community radio stations, public radio stations, college radio stations online, and on top of like independent internet radio, um, and maybe even to some extent, you know, public access TV and video providers who are who may not be using YouTube principally, because I'm sure Google will work out its own deals uh, with ISPs. I mean, what kind of concerns should folks into community and independent media have around this? Well, I think and there's a fundamental access issue that smaller media that can't compete with people like Google or uh, Facebook are going to find is a reality. There's going to be an economic change in how content is delivered. Anybody can access content of their choice now. Now the relationship changes and your ISP gets to decide whether or not the content that you want uh, to access is okay for it to be accessed at a basic speed or in a functional way. And because community media aren't going to be able to afford to pay the road taxes to the ISP to get that content to the consumer, it, it should be a concern. Now, we don't know how it'll shake out. I do still believe there'll be a judicial stay of this order because there's going to be so much legal action on it. So it might be a little bit of time before you need to be functionally concerned. But if you're, you are concerned, you need to be in contact with your legislators right now. If, if you come down on the side that you're worried that 
Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon don't necessarily have your best interests in mind, it's probably time to pick up the phone and start putting a little pressure on your legislators to do something about that. One way I've been thinking about this is that 2017 is very different than even you know, 2004, right? It's very different even than the first George W. Bush administration and radically different from the Clinton administration when the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was passed. In that today, the largest internet provider also owns an enormous entertainment conglomerate, TV stations, networks, studios, etc., where uh, like the second largest internet service provider now owns, you know, all of the the leftovers of the internet boom. They own, you know, the first internet boom. They own Yahoo. They own they own AOL, and within that, they own lots of uh, entertainment and information providers like the like the like the Huffington Post. And this starts to make, you know, I think it, it makes. Th- them want to turn the internet into cable television much more so where you just opt into tiers based upon the kind of stuff you want to get. And if you're, if you're a Comcast customer, uh, universal NBC stuff is going to be easy for them to provide and provide at low cost or basic cost. If you're a Verizon customer, you know, things that are related to AOL, Yahoo, uh, and other networks they may buy, uh, it will be easy for you to get or, or, It'll be pay for play where given networks or providers uh, like a Yahoo or I mean, sorry, like a Google or a Facebook pay to play and get their stuff through. And and then it's always going to be that last tier little little add on is sort of everybody else. And you'll get a little bit of it, but it's everybody else. It's sort of like public access TV channels competing with, you know, 16 channels of HBO right on on your on your cable system. And that it's not going to be so much that community media will be blocked outright. I don't think, frankly, you're stupid enough to do that, but that community media and all sorts of independent voices uh, that aren't necessarily community media will just keep getting a smaller and smaller piece of, of real estate, essentially, uh, in terms of how people access the internet, especially on mobile devices or on all sorts of devices that aren't just regular computers. Is that is that a plausible theory? Is that a plausible hypothesis? I think it's absolutely uh, plausible. I think uh, what you're looking at is part of the story is that these ISPs didn't used to have this sort of horizontal and vertical integration with all this content that they themselves own. And it's totally illogical to assume they're not going to want you to look at that content. I don't think outright blocking is going to be quite the issue that some people do. But I do think throttling, making it harder to access certain types of content, is going to be a real reality moving forward. Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit the last time we talked about net neutrality. But it's, I think it's worth mentioning again. You know, I see a company like iHeartMedia, which is has billions in debt and and whose creditors would love to unload, uh, being a ripe takeover target for a Verizon or for a Comcast. But they need the FCC to clear the decks a little bit and make it a little bit easier in terms of ownership because you've got broadcast properties and all this stuff in the mix. But we have an FCC that seems quite willing to clear the decks to make the uh, Sinclair Tribune merger go through. So I I don't doubt at all that an Pi FCC would clear the decks to allow somehow a Comcast iHeart merger. And from a radio standpoint, I worry. From a podcast standpoint, I worry because then, right, then iHeart becomes the default sort of radio provider for 
Comcast customers. And so, right, even if they're not blocking Radio Survivor, not blocking your community radio station, um, it's going to be buried. You know, because I, I mean, just now, uh, recently, Comcast made a deal with iHeart to place uh, iHeart Radio on, you know, the home screen of your Xfinity player, right? And, and it's those kind of defaults and preferences, I think, that, that lead this sort of thing, follow up by throttling, meaning, you know, then maybe, yeah, you can listen to all the iHeart you want. You know, any station iHeart, you can listen to all you want. It doesn't count against your bandwidth constraints, whether on your home or on your mobile. But as soon as you want to listen to anything else, well, now you've got to play accountant and, you you know, you have to sort of subdivide your 200 gigs a month or whatever it is. I mean, again, I mean, I think we talked a little bit about before, but is this is this chicken little? Am I out screaming in the streets, the sky is falling or or is this something which we could see happening very soon? No, I think zero rating is going to be a part of this story. Zero rating being the process by which Comcast wouldn't count against your data usage, property, and content that they're delivering to you that they already own. And they'll rate other things as non-zero, which would then count against your data cap. And for community media and podcasters, you got to remember, not only is it going to be the media that you're using yourselves, but the uploads of your media itself are going to count against this. And you're going to be, you know, in a non-zero rated environment, people are going to be less inclined, consumers are going to be less inclined to want to access content that counts against their score. And let me argue against myself, right? So let me say, okay, so uh, imagine that I am a Verizon mobile customer and uh, on my plan, uh, they say, okay, you know, uh, there's a zero rated stuff, all the stuff I can sip for free. It's something which already, uh, T-Mobile has an effect. Um, and, uh, then I have, you know, let's just say 200 gigs a month to spend on everything else. Um, why don't I just go over to T-Mobile or just, you know, go over to AT&T or go over to another provider? Isn't the market going to solve that, that they'll be, they're still competing for my business? No, because the ISPs themselves each own a batch of content. They're going to deliver the content that they themselves own rather than the content that you want. <laughs> and you're, unless you're going to have like six plans at the same time, you're going you're gonna to get shortchanged by somebody by trying to access content that your ISP doesn't necessarily own. So, so it's a situation where maybe if, if it turns out that I'm really invested in, in iHeart stations and they're, you know, they also have a music listening environment, uh, I would subscribe to, uh, to one ISP. And then if it turns out I'm really into Spotify and it happens at T-Mobile, zero-rate Spotify, then I would go to T-Mobile, but there's no way that I can be sort of an iHeart and Spotify lover in this case without maybe having to pay lots of extra money to, to, to the ISP to let that stuff through. That's correct. That's correct. So if people don't want this to happen, you mentioned that they should call their member of Congress. And, here, and, and this is a question I think I want to ask you. I think there are some folks who uh, – have members of Congress, a senator or a U.S. representative, who uh, has been very supportive of network neutrality. Um, should they be on the phone to them? Yes, absolutely. All the pressure that can be put on Congress at this point is the next big thing that individuals can do. There's going to be a legal battle that breaks out. There's very little influence that we can have at this point on how that shakes out. But putting pressure on Congress to either stall 
this the implementation of this decision from from Thursday or to actually call the commission in, in front of Congress and give them a specific directive on net neutrality, both of which are better options than just letting this play out. And what about uh, this lawsuit that is likely to be filed by, by uh, state attorneys general? Uh, if you're in a state you know, where uh, your attorney general is filing a lawsuit, I mean, it generally functions differently than like a congressperson, but is there anything you can do to help uh, encourage uh, a state attorney general to move in a direction you'd like them to move? Let them know that you support their decision. They're elected officials just like anybody else. And it will help them to know that they're on the right track. You know, watching C-SPAN on occasion, because I'm a nerd, uh, I've watched a congressperson walk in, you know, to the dais and walk up to the podium and drop stacks of paper, right, that ostensibly represent phone calls and letters they've received from constituents. It seems to me that these things actually do matter. They're sort of uh, a currency in Congress. Is my perception correct? Yeah, I think – Certainly, given the way the FCC handled the comment process as part of this, that the currency that legislators are feeling and the pressure that they're feeling from their constituents about this, it certainly made them stand up and pay attention this past week. Um, you you had a much more bipartisan approach, some people asking the FCC to delay the vote on both sides of the aisle. And even some Republicans in Congress were starting to say, well, you know what, maybe we should think about this before we do it. That was a big move. And it was certainly driven by the the move from people to comment at the FCC and instead put pressure on the legislators. Legislators respond to pressure when they know voters are on an issue. They listen because that's how they keep their jobs. So don't take a vote for, for granted. Uh, let your voice be heard. I think that's probably what we'll leave it with. Uh Christopher Terry, professor of media ethics and law at the University of Minnesota. We'll be catching up because there's some ownership stuff at the FCC we'll need to talk about uh, in the coming year. But right now, I think uh, a big focus is on network neutrality. Thank you so much for joining us and helping to explain this. Anytime. Well, Paul and Christopher, thank you so much for catching us up on the latest with the Federal Communication Commission and network neutrality, so-called network neutrality. I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear on this topic. And it's, uh, it's you know, stay tuned to Radio Survivor for more. Up next on the program on Radio Survivor, we're going to be talking about public access television. And I've been volunteering. I've been producing public access television content here in Portland, Oregon for the year 2017. It's been real fun for me as a radio producer to make this stuff and to do this work. And um, I had the opportunity to speak with two people who work at the television station where I've been working as a volunteer. Uh, That place is called Open Signal, Portland Community Media. And we're going to be talking with them about, uh, Paul, help me out. I started this conversation with friends of mine at this station, but it, we, we tried to frame it in a way that would make sense uh, for Radio Survivor listeners. That's right. I mean, it's community media. And just because we have radio in our name doesn't mean we only want to focus on radio and audio. And we're seeing much more collaboration between public access television and community radio. And in fact, many uh, public access TV stations have founded their own low-power FM community radio stations in the last few years. And what I think is interesting about this is because of the transition that Open Signal is is having 
is go- undergoing at this moment. Right. They rebranded themselves, and that's one of the topics of the interviews. Like, what, what direction did they want to head in uh, when they decided to uh, change their name, and what other things did they change? Yeah, it's because I think what I see is they're rethinking what does it mean to be accessible. It's in the name of public access television, that the yeah. public has access. And I think they're rethinking what that means and how do you orchestrate it? How do you make sure you're accessible in 2017 rather than in the 1970s or 80s yeah. when uh, public access TV was first founded? And that's why I think this is a, a really, really interesting conversation and why I wanted to be able to share it here on Radio Survivor. Well, thank you, Paul. I'm just very excited about uh, Portland Community Media, Open Signal, Public Access Television. Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad I could share it with the listeners. So I'm joined here in Studio B at Open Signal by Chris Lawn, Media Services Technical Lead at Open Signal, and Rebecca Burrell, Director of Strategy and Development at Open Signal. Thank you guys for being here today on Radio Survivor. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Chris, uh, this is not your first public access television station. Correct. How many public access television stations have you worked at? This is my fifth one. Um, I started off in Massachusetts. I worked at my first station uh, as an unpaid intern for about a year. And then um, since then, I've worked at four different stations, including this one. Wow. How familiar are you? How familiar are you with public access, like the reasons why public access television exists. I'm pretty familiar in general, not every detail of the history, but I, you know, know about. I will book a guest someday who will tell me the history of public access television (laughs) going back to the seventies. But, um, mostly a radio survivor, our audience is going to be people that know what community radio is all about. Mm -hmm. So what, what is public access television? Let's be that simple. Um, it is basically a nonprofit medium that gives uh, people access to television opportunities and um, nonprofit TV channels. So uh, a lot of the stations will have some form of education. You know, here we have the media education department. So we have multiple courses. Stations that are smaller will have little weekly workshops. They won't have as many classes, but they'll have similar ones. And usually there are a mixture of learning centers and then just, um, you know, learning centers slash TV stations slash nonprofits. Um, What kind of people get on the air at these television stations? Uh, a lot of people who are, you know, wanting, who get attracted to it are people who have something to say and they need a place to say it, you know, and like they, and it, and also it provides resources that a lot of people can't afford. Not everybody can afford a $3,000 camera or $100 microphones or even, you know, sometimes $50 cables and things like that. So it provides the opportunities and resources that might not be able to. Have on their own. And who makes a decision about what gets on TV? Depends on the station. Usually it's a lot of the ones I've worked at are very free speech oriented and, you know, fairness oriented. So pretty much anything and everything that's not illegal um, or causing harm gets on the air. <laughs> or commercial. Or commercial. Things right, that are point. copyright and things that are, you know, for profit or don't either. As someone who is new to community media it's been cool for me to see sort of the consistent themes in terms of the types of stories that people want to tell on these channels and the diversity of of stories and and messaging so 
you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's experimental artists who have shows they want to produce. There are um, a lot of sort of news-oriented people. People want to talk about community issues. There are people who want to have talk shows. There are people who have um, sort of more activist purposes. And then there's a whole, like, religious segment. So, and and I would say here at our at our space, we have people from a wide variety of religions that have... Um, messages that they want to share which i think is really cool the other thing i've noticed is that um, a lot of public access stations act like local c-spans essentially because um, one of the things i love about it is that it's hyper local and it's hyper local connection to the community and so a lot of them will film government meetings they film selectmen meetings city council depending on what community you're in if there are town meetings where people vote you know one of the stations i worked at we would cover we had a spring town meeting and uh a fall one and they would last multiple nights and we did cover that. So I really like that. And that's not by accident that someone's making a decision to, to cover those meetings. <clears throat> yeah. A lot of times there's uh, you have a contract with the town and with the cable company where um, in the old, older models, they would, pray for tax dollars and then newer models they started doing a, a contract with the cable company where the, the town says to them you can come in set up shop set up your infrastructure but in order to do that a certain percentage of your profits has to go towards public access and then a, a lot of times the government will have a contract with the station about you know you have to cover this many meetings or this is the you know the need you need to fill on top of doing your regular thing Right, the regular thing being like public access artists and and talk show hosts yeah. and people who want to get their messages out, as opposed to um, a camera in the back of a meeting with good microphones set up so you can hear yeah. elected mm-hmm. officials. And at, at Open Signal, we have we have five channels, and one of them is totally devoted to government programming. So twenty percent of what we air is government meetings. So any conceivable city council meeting or minor budget meeting we air probably multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And a shout out to the production department. Now they, they hustle and move and make things happen. And I am always impressed by yeah. the work that they do. That's here at open signal in Portland, Oregon. Uh, you guys have a professional staff that covers these meetings. Yes. As in broadcasts them in their entirety. Yeah. Uh, do they ever file news stories from the meetings? Not that I'm aware of now. Like I said, it's more works like C-SPAN where it's just trying to do the fly on the wall thing, right. you know, trying to remain very neutral and then just record video and sound of everything that's happening. So uh, Open Signal is pretty much my first public access television. I have a little bit of experience watching public access television in Los Angeles, which is different than volunteering and a teeny bit of experience volunteering in Olympia, Washington. Oh, nice. uh, So many years ago. So many years ago. So this is a giant station. Is this one of the biggest? It's definitely the largest I've been at and it's one of the bigger ones around and not surprisingly, usually the city stations are a lot larger than other types of communities. It's the biggest in the state of Oregon. Yes. Of course. You're listening to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Riespendel, and we're listening to a conversation about public access television. 
that my co-host Eric Klein had with two folks from Open Signal, Portland Community Media, here in Portland, Oregon, where we produce Radio Survivor. He's talking with Chris Lawn, Media Services Technical Lead, and Rebecca Burrell, Director of Strategy and Development. And we'll hear more from them in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you that Radio Survivor is heard on great stations all over North America, like X-Ray FM here in Portland, Oregon, and WCOM in Chapel Hill and Carborough, North Carolina. And we could be on your favorite community college, low-power FM, or non-commercial station, too. Tell them about us. Why don't you? That would really help us out a lot. Um, or if you're at a station, drop us a line. We'd love to be on your station. Just go to radiosurvivor.com slash radio to learn more. And also... We're a podcast, so if you can't hear us on the radio, you don't hear us on the radio, you can't make time when we're on the radio, uh, listen to us whenever you like. You can subscribe on Stitcher, on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play. You can also hear us on TuneIn. And if you do listen to us as a podcast, please, please, please subscribe to the show so that you never, ever miss an episode. We really would appreciate that. Now, getting back to our main interview here, Open Signal Community Media recently underwent a rebranding as Open Signal, which coincided with a shift in how the organization thinks about public access. This also included hiring a new executive director, Justin Harn, who would help transform and turn around Portland's nonprofit cinema, the Hollywood Theater, where he served as director of programs and community engagement for nine years. Open Signals Director of Strategy Development, Rebecca Burrell, explains more. Well, I think, you know, Portland Community Media was set up like I think a lot of community media centers are, and Chris, tell me if I'm wrong, in that they really existed primarily to provide the space and the equipment to make the media and to some degree the education to learn to use the equipment, but there wasn't a lot of programming around content, right? So helping people think broadly about what kind of stories they want to tell and how do they want to tell those stories um, in, from, a, from a creative perspective rather than the mechanics of yeah. telling that story. So uh, I think it was just an organic thing, uh, from those of us who came from the arts community. So Justin, myself, all of the folks that he brought with him from the Hollywood Theater, um, we just have a little bit of a different viewpoint about how perhaps nonprofits can engage with their communities and how work gets made. So um, I think it was just a no-brainer to begin to bring people together around content generation yeah. off air, right? So, and also to Chris's point that being more thoughtful and creative about the way you set up your broadcast takes time. Mm-hmm. And anybody needs support in order to do that well. So do we need to be rethinking about the kind of classes that we're offering, right? So is it just about how do you turn on a camera or is it also about um, how do you use mood, 
to tell your story? Mm-hmm. And how do you edit with mood or how to use color to make a different kind of product? And then can we create a residency program where we can actually have artists come into our space for an extended period of time, get access to our equipment, get access to space, engage with the people that use the space, be part of the community, start conversations and um, see how everyone can inspire each other to so make new types of work. There's an artist's residency here at Open Signal, hmm? the public access television station. A couple of them. Yeah. yeah, we have a collaborative program with the Regional Arts and Culture Council where we bring one. Um, actually, we have, I think, four or five artists a year who are given a stipend to create new work to be projected um on the side of a building in the Pearl District uh, on first Thursdays, which is our gallery walk night mm-hmm. every month. Um, and one of those artists is given the opportunity to work on site for an extended period of time and get access to our equipment in order to make uh, a new work that's of a longer length that they can there then share um, at a screening with our community. Uh-huh. And that also airs on cable access, right? Yes. And then we have a... A new media fellowship, which is really geared primarily toward experimental media artists. Um, and they, same thing, are given access to all of our resources, plus um, a certain number of classes, too. So they can come and um, really take focused time to think about the work that they're creating. And they're also given a stipend, and we're trying to up that stipend so that it can actually offset any work that they might have to miss in order to be present at our space. So it requires an investment. It's a huge investment to give people, particularly the resource of time. And that's what we perhaps haven't been doing as an organization up to now, but we're beginning to do that now. Right, because um, I think one thing that anybody who works at any radio station or public access television station knows is that... um, Only certain people walk through the door, like ready in their minds to get on the air. Like, yeah. I'm ready to get on the air. I have my idea. I'm here. And a lot of those people are already producing shows because they've they've been doing it. And I think a lot of the stations I've worked at have been they've they've all been really great, and they've had you know the education component but like rebecca said it's the mechanics as opposed to the storytelling part of it so it's here's how to use a camera here's how to edit here's how to use the lights in the studio and then um and then it's like okay we taught you all these mechanics now make something you know there's and then there's a lot of people are are kind of like okay well where do i start and i think what's you know what they could benefit from is having that like you know uh extra step of learning mood and storytelling and it's like if you were taking an art class where they're like here's how to do brush strokes and here's a canvas here's paints here's paintbrushes now paint something and i think a lot of people could really benefit from like following along with a bob ross type person a couple times before they just create something from their own from a blank i would add one more thing and i know this as a producer but i feel like i also just know this um some people need to know that the work that they're creating uh, is being seen, mm. and then they need uh, permission to to do it again. They need permission to think about it as um, as a success, but also as the beginning of work on a spectrum. It's you know, and I don't think everybody has it in them in themselves to show up at a community media institution 
to make something and then to um to recognize that it was the first step. I think a lot of people will leave after they've before sometimes before they make one thing. They'll get the skills and then uh the the skills are not necessarily the the drive to create. Well, I think too that uh one of the efforts that we you know, have made um, or want to make is to connect people more and have more people be networking. Cause like you said, there's somebody that comes in, has their own thing, they do their show and they kind of, you know, and they leave, but they could benefit largely yeah. from networking with other people. And so we need to connect the pe you know, we really want, need to connect the people who come in and have that idea for a show. Everything's in their mind with the person who just wants to do camera and sound just cause they enjoy it, but they don't have a desire f to make their own show. They really do just want to, be doing the technical stuff. So I really want the, you know, those people to connect with each other. Um, and we do have uh, a networking website called, yeah, you guys just started it. Yeah. Um, it's a service, uh, called switchboard and people can, you know, create free accounts and they have on there what's like, you know, their asks and offers and an ask is like, I really need a sound person on my show. And an offer is like, I'm somebody who's great with editing. Let me know if you need any advice. Um, cause I really think it's important for people to network and to meet each other. And then that will strengthen everybody's work. Yeah. You know, they get that extra feedback. So we have the online version and we also have a physical bulletin board, um, in, in the station where people can post things like that too. And Chris Lawn, you've worked at other stations. Is that, how is that done elsewhere? That's a huge component that is uh, that a lot of stations could benefit from. There hasn't been a huge networking element. It's more people come in as individuals, they learn as individuals, they make shows as individuals. But I think the the coming together is um, something that doesn't happen enough and could happen more yeah. everywhere. The community part, <laughs> the community part of the community media. It's it's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. um, uh, community media is not the only uh, institution in the cities in the United States, I think, struggling to build community yeah. around around things. And I, um, well, and I, I think Rebecca. you have to be really upfront about the the complication of the incredible diversity that's here in our space. Is that not everybody knows how to relate to each other, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are people coming from vastly different cultural backgrounds and they're not going to necessarily want to go to a party together. I mean, we we try to provide opportunities yeah. for people to learn to interact with new types of folks. Um, and obviously they all have something in common, which helps in that they make media, but um, there isn't always a, a very clear basis for uh, a relationship. Yeah. So that's um, just something that we will always face. I will say that for my part, um, I don't want to go to a party with anybody, but I would love to uh, work with everybody. Right. And this sure. is just, uh, that's the kind of nerd that I am here at open signal. Like I have, a, I have a lot more um, people skills. If I'm in a TV studio with, a, with a stranger than if I'm uh, at a street party with mm. a stranger. Uh, I don't know how many opportunities there will be for me to work with strangers at Open Signal. I would like to create more um, volunteer opportunities, um, discussing the idea of some kind of regular staff production. There isn't 
any specific thing yet, but I would like to have yeah. some kind of staff led and staff made production that volunteers can help out on. Cause I think it'd be a really good mechanism for people to meet each other. And I would love to provide an opportunity for people coming out of classes to just use those skills immediately yeah. and not feel, and, and there's a lot of pressure to just, you know, to say like, make your own show and just do it. Or even just, here's a blank canvas, paint something. And then a lot of people are like, ah, you know, that's a lot of pressure. But if you have, you know, some kind of mechanism, like, oh, you're coming out of a class. Well, we do this monthly staff production. Like, you know, I would love to see people doing field classes to like go out and shoot B-roll and then people doing studio classes to run the actual talk show part. And then people who are in editing classes, like edit together some of the B-roll for packages, you know, so we can like play a short piece and then cut back to it um an interview something like that something so. that re- that resembles work <laughs> yeah and, like and given an assignment and having your assignment uh evaluated based on based on its uh how you executed it. Definitely. And I would love to see more people who are, who would love to break into the media field, come and use our resources and make things and build a portfolio or come and volunteer for us and, you know, be able to put that on a resume and have one of us be able to, you know, write letters of recommendation. And then like, I would love for people to use this, you know, to build, build themselves up, um, in a career oriented way. And then after working with us, they have, you know, a YouTube channel or they have some kind of portfolio plus uh, one or more letters of recommendation, you know, that would be a dream. What I love about video is that it really encompasses everything, right? It's visual, it's sound, it's music, it's lights, it's, um, time-based. Yeah. It can be story-based, like every conceivable type of artistic production can be folded into this one medium. Mm -hmm. It is brilliant. And then the distribution possibilities are infinite. But what that means is it's an insane amount of work. Yeah. I mean, it just, it couldn't be more complicated to do it well. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, we're trying to, uh, strengthen our volunteer program and trying to aside from switchboard trying to help um, strengthen networking and volunteer opportunities and so um, right now we have a monthly producer circle meeting which is the third thursday of every month at 6 30 um, where people can come and get updates about what's happening at the studio and uh, you know any other cool information and they can also have an opportunity to provide feedback about what they'd like to see you know and what's been going on and now we have a built-in um, volunteer orientation as well so we're, so monthly now we're like you know so the meeting is at 6 30 and then the volunteer orientation is at eight and so um, anybody who's interested in volunteering, or getting more information, um, can talk to Daniela, who, um, is one of the people that works up front with me, who's super awesome. We're looking to try to strengthen that and get people who are really interested and then have opportunities at the ready for them. So when they come to the orientation, like here's dates that you can sign up for. Yeah. So one of the things that KPFA had that kept me motivated as a young person was, a. Uh, there were opportunities that were built into the culture of the station where um, uh, volunteers could transition into paid work. And that was a motivating factor for a huge number of people that volunteered at the station, that they knew that when they developed their skills and uh, were, well, more, were, had a, were better known to the staff members, that there were opportunities to get hired to do um, one-off jobs. And there was also... Um, 
there was also built into the place uh, relationships with with the freelance outlets, so people could file stories that uh, they got paid to file, and those paid opportunities were um, were really helpful. You know, especially to somebody who was uh, trying to pay rent in the Bay Area uh, and to stick around. Uh, we talk a lot, 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 lot over here about workforce development and what is our role in building um, folks' skill sets so they can enter into the professional field. And I don't know long-term what our potential will be to provide these paid experiences in-house, although I do think we will have that more and more in the future, particularly potentially with our production services department. But what can we do to better connect our producers and students to Nike and, um, you know, local TV shows that are shooting here um, in the city of Portland so that folks can feel like there's a really clear pipeline. Mm -hmm. So once they build the skills, they have a place that they can go. And in particular, I think because we serve such a, a diverse population of people, we feel a great responsibility in helping to impact what the professional field looks like, right? So if our student population, the makeup of our student population was reflected in the professional field, how cool would that be? Right. I really do think we have that potential to affect that level of change, at least locally. Um, so we're working now to build, figure out how to build systems to do that. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's why I was talking about having a, you know, some kind of staff led production that volunteers can work on to get experience. I'm also looking into the possibility of building an internship program. I would love to see college students uh, from the local schools here be more involved, um, especially, you know, media students, and then, you know, have some kind of work study program or internship where they, you know, get experience and can put it on a resume. Um, I would love to see some opportunity for them to earn college credits. I'm still, sure. you know, researching that, but that kind of thing. Like, what about uh, part-time jobs? Yeah. Yeah. Temporary part-time jobs. Cause that's, I mean, one of the, I know that the, you guys aren't the um, staff members at open signal who have, uh, who work on equity full-time, even though ec the equity lens is always there for you. Uh, because you do have staff members here at Open Signal who work on it, um, among other reasons, because it's the values of the organization. But um, some people can't even afford, right, uh, the the eight hours a week of volunteering. Uh, they would starve if they if they took eight hours off from their lives uh, to make community media. And some people can. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a. That's something that we've talked about on Radio Survivor before. That if you can, um, if you can pr provide people with even just a stipend for their time to make community media, uh, you open the doors to so many more people. But then, oh my gosh, you open the doors to so much, so much else. It's not easy to make community media. Yeah, and days. also a lot of stations um, have a very specific limited budget that they try to you know, um, used to the best of their ability. Um, but we, we do also, uh, we have a grant writer person on staff. So we're trying to secure, um, grants and yeah. get new ones, things like that. But I will say that one of the good things is, uh, this year 
um, every year, you know, the budget for things gets a little tighter and the like, money we get from the city and everything. And this year was the first year, um, that first year in nine years that there wasn't a 5% cut. Wow. So that's both a, a political, uh, reality that maybe the city of Portland has some more, uh, revenue to work with, to give it away, but also, uh, I'm going to say it's because open signal invested in having a staff member to pursue that that money from yeah. the city of Portland. So that's a we advocated very well for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of people and I want to give a shout out to the producers and every single person that spoke with and for and next to us. Oh, I, I need know. to watch that video. Um and Because uh, <laughs> you guys organized people to come to the city council meeting mm-hmm. to yeah. advocate for uh open signals uh, expansion. I was blown to. away by the producer turnout yeah, at that budget awesome. session in particular. That's wonderful. And everybody wore their open signal t-shirts and it sort of, it actually overwhelmed uh, the audience a little bit, yeah. I think. And after, <laughs> afterward, one of the commissioners sort of wanted to know why we came on so strong because I think our presence was greater than I even realized that it was. But, yeah. um, you know, you continue to, ask us to do more every year with less money like at some point we have to raise a ruckus so respectfully yeah and i was i was really impressed by the people that came out and spoke spoke with us and we also had um a youth uh speak speak for us and you know who's somebody who started you know took a camp here really loved it and now they volunteer on um, helping to run the camp and wow. you know like I, I love seeing that story somebody who gets in, involved and then stays involved yeah I know that there's so many uh, projects that Open Signal is working on in uh, often other that we haven't even scratched the surface really because I know that there's a lot of work going on where people are you know you, you guys have Open Signal has partnerships with nonprofits to create content I know that there are uh, youth classes and camps i know that there is um uh the documentaries being made and this year we actually had a really awesome uh camp for i think the age group was like 11 to 14 i believe um but it was a camp specifically for um female identifying people Mm -hmm. um and that was you know huge and um that's I don't know if it's one of a kind, uh, but it's, it's very, you know, having something like that is, is huge for some people. Yeah. Well, I, I think I need to dig into each individual project to, to, you know, to hear more, to learn more, especially from the producers that worked on it. That would be a fun project for me. Well, uh, Chris Lawn, media services, technical lead here at open signal, Portland community media. Thank you so much. Thank you. For your time today on radio survivor and Rebecca Burrell, director of strategy and development here at open signal, Portland community media. Thanks for coming on the, Thank you. the radio. This program. is fun. Yeah. Thanks Eric for that conversation with, uh, Chris Lawn and Rebecca Burrell there at open signal, Portland community media. Um, it's fascinating to me as they're trying to shift this focus to thinking about how they can help people be on the television and create art uh, rather than just opening up the doors and saying anyone can come in. It's a tough transition. 
It's a tough transition, I think, for a lot of community radio stations. Uh, and I think it's, uh, from what I hear, probably a tough transition for a lot of public access TV stations because from an historical standpoint, so many stations were really founded on this kind of open access philosophy um, that really, at the time, didn't necessarily think about open access to whom. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been on our minds here at Radio Survivor uh, before and after we launched the podcast. Like, who, you know, who who does this work? Who has the privilege to do it? Who has the privilege of getting paid to do it? Uh, who who has the privilege of doing it uh, when they don't get paid to do it? Or 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 any number of other uh, types of help that someone might need to do it. So even yeah. if there's not money, uh, would a station be able to offer childcare? Right, what, you know, and in the same way that if you go to IKEA, you can drop them off at the little <laughs> children's play section. Yeah. Could you have such a thing for your public access TV show yeah. or or your community radio station? Right, and, and thinking what are the barriers that are really in people's lives uh, beyond just their ability to come in and get the training? Because I think that that initially, twenty or thirty years ago, it was assumed the training. One, and then merely the ability to get to the microphone and the camera were the principal barriers. But I think now in 2017, 2018, going on to 2018, uh, we know that that's not it because people have microphones and cameras in their pocket, but there's still something more about doing community media, working with other people, being on the platform, being exposed to many more viewers and listeners and having these collaborations. Uh, that's more so than just simply being able to go on a Facebook live or tweet something. Yeah. And, and so thinking about this bigger question, it, it's great to hear that uh, this particular station open signal is doing that. And I know it's these conversations are being had yeah. in lots of other well, and community. What media. do you think out there in radio land? Are you having these conversations or, are, are you aware of these conversations and you'd like to talk back to the one you just listened to? We would love to hear from you. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And we are a listener and viewer supported enterprise. Anything you can do to help us do what we do, we'd really appreciate it. Learn how you can support Radio Survivor at radiosurvivor.com slash support. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can talk with us that way as well. And you can hear every single show. As a podcast, if for some reason you can't catch it on the radio, we were there in Stitcher. Tune in. We are there in iTunes. We are there in Google Play. And you can put our feed into any podcast app. If you want links and instructions for all that, go to our website, radiosurvivor.com. And just look along the right-hand side, and you've got all the links to all the ways you can listen to the show. Hey, Paul Reismandel, thank you so much for your help on this program today. My name is Eric Klein. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you.